9% death rate is phenomenal. It's the best in the history of war. But now the next fight is what we have to prepare for. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl. On this episode of War Docs, we partnered with the Order of the Dedalians, an organization that honors those who flew and fly in defense of our nation. We presented a live web event and recorded it for the podcast. Our topic is critical care in the air. We are privileged to welcome retired Lieutenant General Dr. Paul K. Carlton Jr., who served as the 17th Surgeon General of the United States Air Force. Dr. Carlton is a general surgeon by training and in his distinguished career was instrumental in conceptualizing and implementing critical care in air transport teams. This transformed the way military medicine provides battlefield care of the ill and injured. You can read his full bio on wardoxpodcast.com. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Lieutenant General, Dr. Paul K. Carlton Jr., the 17th Surgeon General of the United States Air Force, pilot and general surgeon. Sir, thanks for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation to share a few thoughts. Can you tell us what led you to join Air Force Medicine and what made you decide to stay in it and make it a career? Well, I grew up in an Air Force family. My father was an aviator. He, we literally moved all around the country. And I went to the Air Force Academy with every intention to be an aviator, as in a pilot. Unfortunately, I flunked the physical for an eye problem. And my alternate was to go to medical school. The Surgeon General at the time, a gent by the name of Bohannon, said, if you go to medical school, we'll waive your eye problem and send you to pilot training afterward. And I said, you know, that's a deal I can't pass up. And so off I went to medical school. And uh, unfortunately, in the middle of medical school, uh, they changed the rules and I was not eligible then to go to pilot training. And so focused on the uh, surgical training that I was in at the time. Now, why do you stay in anything is a difficult question to answer. At the end of my obligated service, I had looked very carefully at the civilian environment. Obviously, I was integral 32 years as an Air Force member, either in uniform or as a dependent. And so I had an Air Force family. I want to focus on my family, uh, my wife, my children, and my Air Force family. And so as I went along and finished my obligation in 1982, we took another assignment and then another assignment and then another assignment until by the time we were all through, we had spent 33 years as a commissioned officer. So before you knew it, you were the Surgeon General of the Air Force. It was a difficult discussion <laughs> to get there. In a longer talk I give, I was actually fired five times and court-martialed three times for standing up for things that I thought were wrong. In each case, I had a guardian angel that turned those around. One of those guardian angels being Walt Hurstman on the bill right now. I got actually formal charges brought against me as the Surgeon General. And so, again having to persevere through those things, having to listen and then explain my actions in legal proceedings was unpleasant, but it affected a net gain in where we are medically. It's, it's been said in medicine, it takes 50 years to introduce anything new and 100 years to stop anything that you've been doing in the past. And we were able to bring the changes in military medicine after they were initially broadcast in 1983 to fruition in 2000. And it has resulted in saving more than 12,000 servicemen's lives. In Vietnam, we had a 
diet of wounds rate of 24% in this most recent 20 years of conflict, we've had a diet of wounds rate of 9%. So that equates to more than 12,000 got home that would have not gotten home in the previous conflict. Let's dive in a little bit into how we got to where we're at now. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of traditional air evacuation and some of the limitations that you perceived when you started your career? Yes, airbag, it goes all the way back to the Pancho Villa expedition of the just before World War One, where we would load patients in a so-called Jenny, a JN4, and take them back from the border to San Antonio. In World War One, it literally did not exist except in that JN4. But as the airlifters matured, as the thinking matured in World War II, it did a very good job of bringing people home from the conflicts in the Pacific and in Europe. And then shown a great deal in the Korean War and in Vietnam. So AIRVAC has been with us for now more than 100 years. But by the time of the Gulf War, we'd lost our way a little bit and uh, forgot who the primary focus was. And so we had to make some changes, which we did. So how does a general surgeon really get interested in critical care in the air? My defining event was uh, my tour in Europe in three years in Wiesbaden, Germany. We arrived in May of 1982, and it was a 300-bed hospital. Our average daily census was 25. And I said, where in the world are all the patients going? And then over the next year, I found out that they were going into local host nation facilities who did not share the same values that we shared, specifically, how do you take care of the ventilator patient? So I started going to those outlying facilities, both Air Force, Army, and Navy, and saying, if any of your people get injured, we will come and pick them up. And that led then to the first critical care in the air transport, which was done by a very good friend of mine, John Lockett, Lieutenant Colonel, Chief of Anesthesia at Wiesbaden. And we picked up a ventilated patient. We had no idea it was against the regs and against the rules. But then we continued to do that for the ensuing two years until I left Germany and came to Spain. So we knew it was very possible to do. And actually, the patients that we picked up, because we had different techniques of pulmonary management, specifically positive inspiratory pressure, we didn't lose a single one of those. We lost none of them on the airplane. We lost none of them back in the ICU at uh, Wiesbaden. And so it happened out of a true desire not to have people die that uh, potentially could be salvageable. So tell us a little bit about the flying ambulance surgical trauma team concept that you developed in 1984. And how did that challenge the traditional air evacuation dogma? Flying ambulance surgical trauma team actually is named after Dr. LeRae, who designed the flying ambulance in the Napoleonic Wars, where he would go and pick up soldiers on the battlefield of any color of uniform. So he picked up as many Brits or as many Russians as he did Frenchmen. So that's where the name came from. The origin in our modern environment came out of the Marine barracks problem, where my partners and I received 25 Marines in a period of a couple of hours, and we had to then go through the first mass casualty since Vietnam. I looked at that and came up with five things that I thought were important for us to do afterwards, uh, specifically to support our friends around the world, the, the Navy in particular. And I was told basically, Lieutenant Colonel Carlton, we don't care what you think. Uh, we know how to run a war from people that were not surgeons and people that did not have the same values for life that I had. So I put it on paper, a means to then support other areas. And remember, during this time, we had small clinics all around Europe that were subject to explosive devices that were subject to terrorist attacks. Europe at that time was in a terrorist mindset. And so we needed to be able to bolster them quickly 
So we designed the flying ambulance surgical team around the C-9 and the C-130 to be able to move very quickly, be in the air in less than two hours, and then flying time to wherever we were needed. How did the big Air Force react? I mean, do they accept that concept and say, yeah, let's make this policy? Or do they say, let's take another 100 years to change what we've been doing? Well, big Air Force did not think so highly of that because they wanted everything available. Our typical air transportable hospital was our maneuver unit at the time. It took a full C-130 to move. Well, what that meant was we did not get invited to the fight. We were too fat with our airlift requirements. So what we did was we made something that was airlift friendly that would fit specifically on a lesser airplane so that if there were other troops involved, other combat people involved, we would get invited on the first flight in instead of on day number 30, which was the routine at the time. So it was not received warmly by many people. So you mentioned that you utilized the C-9, and during that time, they were talking about the C-17. What limitations did the C-9 have, and what was needed to address your vision for the future for the C-17? Well, the C-9 had very limited legs. It could could travel about 2,000 miles, but it could not go intercontinental. It could not go across the big oceans that we had to be involved with. So we designed it around that, but knowing that we would need a bigger airlifter, specifically the C-141 or the C-17, as it came about. For Europe, we focused on the C-9 because that was available and it was right next to our hospital at a base in Frankfurt, Germany. For the bigger picture, we knew that we needed to do better. So let's fast forward a little bit. We're, we're now up to Desert Storm, 1990s, early. What lessons do you learn from that conflict that refined or changed your vision about critical care in the air and what was possible for the future? Well, you have to remember that I've been doing critical care in the air since 1984. We did it in Germany. We did it in Spain. In Spain, we had to work out how we would then take care of patients who were in local host nation facilities that... Uh, then would come to our place. We transported an ambassador from Turkey to Spain, all the way to Boston. And so I knew the requirement was there. Then when I had the the privilege to go to and participate in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, what I found if I went and hopped on the AirVac airplanes and and went to a little place called Kafji, which was the first attack that Saddam Hussein made against our forces. And what I found was AirVac, you had to be able to walk onto the airplane, have no tubes, no drains, and have no medical problems whatsoever. Now, eight years prior, I had been moving people desperately ill on ventilators. And so I knew that that was not the standard that uh, I could accept. And so set about uh, how we could change that and was able there then very fortunately to do that. It took us a long time to get all of the equipment approved for AirVac because it had, it emitted different things. We had to harden terminals to make so that uh, the radio frequency interference did not occur. But the defining event was, was the Black Hawk Down event. Many of you all remember that event in Mogadishu. And the day before Black Hawk Down, there had been a shark bite victim where a young Marine had been swimming at the, uh, at the beach. A shark bit him, took off his buttock entirely. He was desperately ill. Aravac was close by. We actually had an air transportable hospital close by in Egypt. But Aravac required a surgeon to go on the Aravac airplane because they could not provide any medical care whatsoever, despite having two nurses and three aeromedical technicians. So I went to the after action report of Mogadishu, having worked in the special operations world for two years from 88 to 90 and discussed this with 
the, at that time, the Special Operations Command Surgeon, a gentleman that subsequently became a two-star, his name was Phil Volpe, and he said, can you really do this? I said, of course I can. I've been working for two years to have the equipment supplied, but I haven't brought it to Big Air Force. He said, how much would it cost? I said, well, it cost $500,000. He gave me a check, and obviously I had to give that to the Air Force Special Operations Command we then equipped an entire group of two critical care in the air uh, teams with training equipment and put them in the joint environment. And our first discussion for that was the Haiti op in 1994. An interesting side note to that was the hospital commander at Wilford Hall did not have the clearance to know where his people were, were going. And uh, he did not think very highly of me for committing his people without telling him. So it was a long, tortuous discussion to get to where we needed to be as a joint partner. Now, the net effect of that in my war, in the Gulf War 1991, we had 30,000 medics deployed. We ended up having less than 200 deaths. In this last 20 years of war, we have had less than 1,000 medics deployed at any given time because we don't take care of people in the forward location. We stabilize them. We allow them to then re-equilibrate their blood pressure and their vascular continuity, and then we move them for their definitive surgery, normally at 12 to 24 hours, to the closest facility that can handle them, which generally in this conflict was Lansdowne or even back to the United States of America. So it's been a tremendous difference in what our deployed forces look like. When the medics are there, they have to be clothed, they have to be fed, they have to be taken care of. And so we have lowered that footprint tremendously from the line of the military side. So do you recall any particular missions or cases that, that really can showcase the early success of this CCAT concept? Oh, yes. On the 1st of October of 2001, the 10th Mountain Division landed in a place just north of Afghanistan called Karshi Kanabat. I had seen the laydown. I did not agree with it. And Army doctrine at the time says you can't get an operation until you're 30 days point because, again, their equipment was very heavy. It was very complete. It was very good, but it was very heavy. And so your first operation would occur on day 30. I inserted a black team, a special ops surgical team, one of the small, if you will, the FAST team, the Flying Ambulance Surgical Trauma Surgical model of that, and a critical care in the air team in the special ops world. And a 10th Mountain Division soldier, when he got off the airplane, unfortunately, tripped and fell as he was loading a water buffalo onto a Humvee. Kim sticks in the air. It was dark. He'd been up for more than 30 hours. And unfortunately, his Kim sticks didn't come down when he fell on the upturned trailer hitch. The Humvee kept backing. It drove that trailer hitch right through his anus, his rectum, his bladder, and came out his anterior abdominal wall. He was in shock within two minutes, and he was bled out in five minutes. We, With this small five-member surgical team, they addressed him surgically, tried to control him from below, could not. Finally ended up having to go above, came up with a walking blood bank so that the 10th Mountain Division literally saved their old man. Uh, they stabilized him. He was not stable. He was stabilized. And we had a special ops critical care team that then flew him to Inserlik, Turkey. In Inserlik, Turkey, they gave him a secondary operation, stabilized him further, took him on to Lonstool with that same critical care in the air team. And the man ultimately survived. Now, I gave that story at a joint conference several months later, and an Army two-star in the front row started crying. I went up to him afterwards and said, sir, I've offended you, and I don't know why, but I am sorry. He said, that was my son, and he is alive and doing well right now. 
His anatomy's a bit rearranged than it was before. He said, but I will help you put that into army doctrine. And he did so. That's a that's a really incredible story and, you know, really showed the power of this concept. But from what I understand, the Air Force or air evacuation community still didn't jump to embrace it. What finally got the CCAN over the finish line from proof of concept to part of Air Force doctrine? Several things. In February of 1994, I went with a young surgeon to Air Mobility Command. I was the education and training surgeon at the time. We went to Scott, presented the whole CCAT concept to a bright surgeon general named Chip Roadman. Chip said, this is exactly what we need to do to be the best partner for the Army, for the Navy, for the Marine Corps. And we started implementing that uh, over heavy opposition from the traditional AirVac community. So fast forward then to spring break of 1996. It's April time. I've taken my son and family for a ski trip to Breckenridge. And we sat down to breakfast at a B&B, and I introduced myself to the couple next door, asked what they were doing, and it turns out that she was the executive officer to the commander of the AirVac squadron at uh, Scott Air Force Base. She then started talking about this idiotic two-star down in San Antonio and his kitty cat teams, and I, I obviously pulled a lot of information out of her about how they planned to scuttle that whole discussion and then was able to take the appropriate measures so that we could make sure that it, it survived and became Air Force doctrine as all of us wanted to do so. So after 9-11, the demand for traditional AeroVac and CCAT really increased. And I understand there was some kind of conflict between the air crew members simultaneously attending airplane safety activities and the attending the critical care activities. How did this ever get worked out? Well, that was a difficult discussion. And again, it goes back to the relationships that you form. Uh, the commander of the air mobility at that time was a good friend of mine. We had been wing commanders together uh, in the air mobility command at that time called MAC. And so AirVac flatly refused to help our critical care and the air teams at all, uh, flat refused to accept my guidance for what they needed to do in terms of being able to help the critical care and the air team. So it resulted in a conference that uh, was a very unpleasant pointed conference conference between the AirVac leaders, General Handy, the commander of the Air Mobility Command, and myself at Scott Air Force Base shortly after the war began. Basically, after listening to everything, I turned to General Handy and said, well, I have two options, sir. I can fire this whole bunch, retire everybody that's a lieutenant colonel and above, uh, or you can take them, put them in the line of the Air Force. I don't want them if they take no guidance from the Surgeon General. What would you like to do? He said, I'll take them. And so they have been in the line of the Air Force since 2001 and have accepted no medical input from the Surgeon General. Wow. That's quite a story. It's all about change. Right. Equal resistance to change. Let's fast forward a little bit more. So now we're in OIF, OEF. Tell us a little bit about what kind of improvements happened with CCAT, what lessons were learned over that time frame. Well, we learned a lot in, in the initial operations in Iraq and in Afghanistan. My initial discussions when I said I'm most comfortable taking care of somebody after I stabilize them the first time, and then there's a period of 6 to 12 hours that uh, really nothing goes on with them, and it turns out I was wrong. Uh, a very good friend that, uh, that had been a resident for mine at Wolford Hall called me one day and he said, sir, we're getting all these patients, and this is uh, 2003, we're getting all these patients from Germany that had normal extremities when they get on the airplane, when they get to us, they have compartment syndromes, what's going on? And so 
our, our whole focus was to go after the KIA group, the killed in action group, which had run 17 to 18% in Vietnam. And we brought it down to five to 6%. But what we had not estimated was that to return vascular stability so the blood vessels didn't leak tremendous amounts of fluid took about 12 to 24 hours. So with that young resident, his name was Warren Dorlach, guidance, we changed the doctrine and said, we need to have everybody stabilized to include their fluid requirements going down, which was an indicator that vascular stability had recurred and we lost no more compartment. So that was the biggest lesson we learned. Uh, subsequently, we have learned more. You have to remember that critical care in the air was not entirely Mayan discussion. It actually goes back to uh, Okinawa. Okinawa, as you know, is a large Navy and a Marine base as well as an Air Force base. And it is what we call a, a baby factory. They have a huge number of babies born every year. Some of them suffered from a problem called meconium aspiration. In other words, when they were stressed, they pooped. Then they breathed the poop and that seared their lungs. These were perfectly normal babies who happened to not be able to breathe. And so one of our outstanding pediatric neonatologists uh, said, well, we're doing ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in the United States. We can do it on an airplane. So starting in 1983, we started doing ECMO. We'd fly all the way to Okinawa. We'd pit these babies on extracorporeal circulation bring them back to Wolford Hall. And we did that quite successfully several times a year. So critical care in the air was not something new for the Air Force. What was new for was the battlefield. We now have ECMO machines that weigh six pounds and that are approved for air vac use. We approved them for air vac use on the 1st of October, 2010. And within two weeks, we had to move an ECMO patient who had been shot, took out his right lung, the top of the left lobe. He was in florid heart failure from right heart dilatation. There was no outflow tract for blood to go to the lungs because so much of the lung had been removed. He needed ECMO. We put him on ECMO at the forward operating location, stabilized him, brought him home, and he walked out of the hospital 10 days later. So when we talk about the ability to do everything in the air, it's remarkable. We started doing surgery using night vision goggles and in airplanes in 1992 at the military health system research symposium in 2019. We had a young 22 year old, then a junior at Yale University outline his travails. He had been shot in Afghanistan four times. He had been properly resuscitated by his pararescue gentleman, gotten on a helicopter. He arrested in the helicopter. They were doing closed chest massage in the helicopter. They called for a surgical helicopter. The army sent a surgical helicopter transferred in the middle of the night in the mountains of Iraq at three o'clock in the morning in sub-zero weather. The surgeon picked him up, did a left thoracotomy to uh, then give him open heart massage. Again, as the helicopter's going out, this young man had eight minutes of no cardiac activity whatsoever, saw that he was bleeding from the inferior pulmonary vein, controlled that with a suture ligature, and stabilized the gentleman. He then went through the sequence, recovered entirely, and I believe now, two years later, he's a freshman at the Uniformed Services University. That's what's happening when we we act as good partners to our sister services. It's a joint world. We're supposed to be thinking joint since Goldwater Nichols in 1986. And I would suggest that we have done a better job, we the Air Force, 
have done a better job being joint than we have ever done before. So we talked earlier on the phone and you mentioned about a mindset that some people had that no patient ever dies in an airplane. That's a mindset, which obviously could result in some kind of risk aversion. How is that? And how do you respond to that? The Surgeon General is the man that told me that when I had briefed him on what we've been doing in Europe in 1985. And he got uh, very pointed with me about two inches from my nose and uh, very loudly told me that no one would ever die in an Air Force airplane. My response was, if competent Army or Marine Corps or Navy authority tells me his best shot, of course, I would go to pick him up and try to have him not die on an airplane. Unfortunately, that gentleman didn't listen very well, and he tried to have me fired for those comments. And wonderful line commanders like Walt Hirschman protected me through that time because they understood the importance of jointness, the importance of being a better team member. So, uh, the actual quote was, it's like trying to catheterize a running racehorse, stop right now and never bring this up again. And so I had to wait until he retired. And I did so. And we proceeded from that avenue on. What would you say are the differences in capabilities in a CCAT equipped C-17 and an ICU you'd see on the battlefield, let's say a combat surgical hospital or in an ICU in a level one trauma center? What are the differences? The differences are remarkable. It's noisy. It's cold. You have dim lighting. The equipment is not what you're used to. You can't see it very easily. Uh, about 90% of the time, the CCAT members are dealing with environmental issues. 10% of the time, uh, they're dealing with the patient. We have to wrap the patient up. Actually, there's a cocoon that goes over that patient for all of the monitoring equipment so that virtually it's very difficult to touch the patient. Actually, when 911 occurred, I had a team down in Australia doing the next step for critical care in the air, which was to have a module that would fit on any palletized aircraft that would provide a standard ICU environment. We now are having an offsite on Saturday on that very topic. The special operations world has issued a request for proposal that uh, we have exactly that. The goal would be that anybody could walk into one of those such modules. It's a three pallet module and that it would be exactly like any ICU or operating theater currently available. And so the training part would come down dramatically. Obviously it's noise suppressed. It's, it's vibration suppressed. It's got 25 air changes per hour. It's excellent lighting. So we're finally finishing what we had wanted to do back in 2001. We actually have data on that. If you look at what happened out of New York City when they moved all the COVID patients to upstate New York, each of those COVID patients uh, was transported on a $30,000 an hour rotary wing aircraft. It was somewhere between an hour and a half to two hours for each trip, and then you had to pay for the return trip. If such a module had been available that could handle up to 12 patients on the back end of a C-130, the C-130 has about the same operating cost per hour, we could have saved about 99% of the cost of that rotary wing evacuation and done it uh, more intelligently. And so we're working now to have that become part of a strategic reserve and actually part of the battlefield for the next generation. Our, our current chief of staff gave a great briefing last month talking about moving into sixth generation warfare with fifth generation aircraft and fourth generation weapons and that this was un acceptable. Well, we're doing exactly the same thing in the medical front. Let's not try to fight with tents that go back to Alexander the Great with environments that literally it's very difficult to do anything with. So we're working that 
a request right now with SOCOM Special Operations Command, and we will have a multi-talented group uh, come in on Saturday for that offsite. So in military medicine and combat medicine, we hear concepts such as the platinum 15 minutes to receive initial life-saving care, the golden hour to get patients to damage control capabilities. Are there any similar time-related standards or expectations for CCAT capabilities to get patients from one role to the other? You have to remember that CCAT is a transportation system. And so anytime there is transportation available, we have a CCAT team on site. So our CCATs have traditionally been placed at the forward AirVac hubs, either Balad or Bagram, and at Launchstool so that they could launch then with a fresh team, the team on the ground in the theater, then launch back to Launchstool and the Launchstool team would then replace them on site in the forward area. And so as transportation is available, the CCAT teams have been available. We now have ground CCATs. Uh, the Army has a similar capability, a little bit heavier footprint. But uh, yes, we have those time requirements. And actually, there was a decision back in 2009 by Secretary Gates that said you will meet the golden hour in the theater in Afghanistan. So over the next three years, actually, we met the golden hour 75% of the time for surgical stabilization. Now, the challenge of the future is not, is CCAT available? The challenge is if we're to fight a near peer and we do not have sixth generation airplanes or sixth generation equipment and we don't have air dominance, what are we going to do? Likewise, we've had a biological warfare going on in this country for the last 18 months. We can expect that that will have to occur in the next conflict. And so the challenge then becomes, can you maintain that excellent survival in the face of an enemy air threat, in the face of not just ballistic injuries, and protect your soldiers to maintain the faith with them that a very low percentage would die of their wounding. So there's lots of challenges as we look to the future. The danger we have right now is that we pat ourselves in the back and say, oh, look what we've done. We're, look, we're so good. Well, we, have, we are good. 9% death rate is phenomenal. It's the best in the history of war. But now the next fight is what we have to prepare for. So right now, the CCAT team is, is basically three members, a critical care physician, a, a nurse, and a respiratory therapist. And it, so it relies on a lot of human initiative and, and human smarts. Is there anything in the technology realm that a monitor not only would alert the physician or nurse that something's going on, but actually treat the patient without that human interaction? on a CCAT or evacuation mission. Funny you should say that. Our difficulty is getting the Food and Drug Administration to allow us to do those studies. Colonel J. Joe Hannigman, who's deployed seven times to the war theater as a trauma surgeon, as the trauma czar, as a CCAT member, and he actually designed an automatic system to monitor and then meter oxygen. To do that, the FDA required he be at the bedside for every minute that that artificial intelligence was monitoring the oxygen intake. And so what we're allowed to do and what we would like to do are frequently very different. If you look and say, well, in a dispersed battlefield, say the Pacific, we don't have enough surgeons, we don't have enough orthopedic surgeons, we don't have enough anesthesia people to possibly do a more than low flow casually. And so part of the training has to be 
that we will have alternate people be able to be their hands with artificial intelligence and with telemedicine. And I think we're going to be able to keep faith with that soldier, sailor, airman uh, or Marine who's injured. So right now we have CCAT teams that are the National Guard and the reserves and active duty. Do we have enough? We've never had enough. We have a hardcore requirement when I retired of 240 teams. The most we ever managed to field was 120. So they are a high demand, high deployment system. And uh, we would love to have more, but uh, the people, we haven't released or downgraded any of the skills required. And so having enough people to fill those skills uh, is always a difficult discussion. The CCAT course is a four-week course, two weeks just to teach them how to live in that difficult environment, and then two weeks actually in a simulator at the University of Cincinnati that does a superb job if we build these modules properly so that Everything they're used to in an ICU or an operating theater is the same. I think we'll be able to cut down that teaching requirement a great deal and therefore increase the number of teams that we can field. So if you looked into a crystal ball, what future innovations do you see in critical care in the air over the next 10, 20 years? The entire intervention discussion of artificial intelligence. The C-17 engine sends a constant stream of information about what its temperature is, what the load, what the demand on the engine is, and it's monitored on the ground. So we can tell in advance if an engine is going to fail and we pull it and we don't let it fail on the on the aircraft. Well, that same monitoring device could be then done, uh, same type of monitoring for our patients and move much larger numbers. Again, a CCAT team of three members is only good for three patients. And so if you have six patients, all on ventilators, it takes two full teams. We would hope that with artificial intelligence and ground monitoring that has really burgeoned in this last year and a half of telemedicine and doing things from, from home, that we'll be able to then be able to handle more patients per individual team. Dr. Carlton, what challenge would you give to the next generation of military medical professionals? I think the critical part is that we don't rest on our laurels, that we take to heart the chief's admonition to be ready to fight the sixth generation war. And I can tell you I'm involved with that because I haven't found anybody else that's willing to get involved with that. The Army says that's an Air Force problem. We're planning on fighting the same medical war. Well, it's not an Air Force problem. Air dominance is something that has we have enjoyed since 1953 when the last GI was killed by enemy air action. Now, we lost some to space action in the 91 intercept of a, of a Scud missile that killed people in Dahran. But we have been spoiled in that environment. And so I'm concerned that we're unwilling to move abruptly into the future and also be a little bit selfish involved. We have a 3% excess mortality in the war zones. Rural America has 36% excess mortality. And so one of my major focuses right now is to bring the, the lessons of the war to rural America and make sure that we are fulfilling our obligation as medical people to share the lessons learned and lower that 36% excess mortality. So let's fast forward even farther into the future. hundred years from now, your family in the future looks in a time capsule and finds this recording of this conversation. What is something that you would want your family hundred years from now to know about you and, and maybe your legacy in military medicine? 
Well, clearly what I'd want them to know is that we were flexible enough as a team to ignore tradition and move into a future that was a very difficult future to move into with lots of opposition. As I indicated, I was fired five times for these thoughts, court-martialed three times. All of them turned around without formal proceedings because reason prevailed and and they recognized that uh, this would be idiotic to do so. So any change is difficult. Again, new ideas, 50 years, getting rid of old ideas, 100 years. Uh, That is the medical environment. And that's not all bad. You have to prove that what you've said is true. And we have proven that critical care in the air makes perfect sense. It gives us a better survival. It gives us a better operating in theater. It lowers the number of people that are actually deployed in a wartime setting. And one of the things we, we didn't plan on and couldn't measure was how much does having family members count? In other words, when we hurt people in surgery after their second, third, or fourth operation, and they give up, then they generally die. It's much harder to do that with your husband, your wife, uh, your kids, your parents, holding your hands and giving you encouragement. So I would hope that in 100 years, the time capsule says Carlton and his team were willing to move into a future that was difficult to move, but worth every minute of that movement. We've been speaking with retired Air Force Lieutenant General Dr. Paul K. Carlton, Jr. Sir, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your incredible service to our nation. Well, thank you, Doug. It's a real pleasure to chat with you all and a pleasure to be a member of this great society. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.